Welcome to this week's FoxCast. I'm Sonny Fox, and tonight a conversation, it's got to be one of my favorite of all time. John Cleese, and he talks about everybody, from all his partners in Monty Python, A Fish Called Wanda, Faulty Towers. It's an extraordinary conversation, and I, I must <laughs> I must admit, at the beginning, when we before we started recording, I said, my name is Sonny Fox, because he was in California, I was in Florida. And the fact that I said that, I live to regret because he brought up the name Sonny so many times as a joke that Alan Parsons, who was in the studio with him in California, a big fan of John's, uh, was there, asked permission to sit in and listen to the conversation. And John's remarks to me actually ended up on the end of one of Alan Parsons' projects, uh, LPs. So it was just one of my favorite times, and I think you're going to really enjoy it because he's an extraordinary human being, a very funny man, and he's done so much. I hope you enjoy John Cleese. Okay, here we go. Are we rolling? All right, Sonny. All right. <laughs> uh, you don't mind if I call you John, do you? Um, let me think about it. <laughs> I would prefer Norman. <laughs> All right, if Norman. That's, if that's, but that might confuse the audience. Might. Okay, John. Uh, John, are you familiar with uh, XM Satellite Radio, first of all? No, Sonny. <laughs> I've never heard of it in my life. I suppose you're going to tell me about it, are you? No, not at all. I just want to make sure I, I shouldn't bring it up then. <laughs> all right, Sonny. Stop that. That'll be a secret between us, Sonny. John Marwood Cleese. Oh, you're starting now. Yes, right. What's your middle name, Sonny? I'm not telling you, or you'll be saying two <laughs> names every time. <laughs> I was born in 1939. Actually, would you explain, or did you ever ask your father why he changed his last name from Cheese to Cleese, or is that he, obvious? Yeah, he was, he was simply fed up with being teased, uh, and he'd had enough of it. And then he went into the First World War. He was 22 years of age, and he went in in 1915. And he just thought to himself, I can't deal with this teasing anymore. So he changed the H to an L. And then when he came out of the Army in 1918, he, uh, he uh, did it by a thing called deed poll. It's sort of legal way of doing it. Uh-huh. Now, was he an influence on you? Was he a funny guy? Was he a talented? Yeah, he was. He was, he was very funny in a slightly, uh, a slightly laid-back way, a sort of deadpan way. And uh, he had a sort of real sense of the ridiculous. I remember once we were driving in the part of uh, England where I live, the West Country, and it was one of those little windy country lanes and hedges very high, and you sort of hit your, hit your horn every 30 seconds because you really can't see whether anything's coming or not. <laughs> and suddenly another car came around the corner and nearly hit us and screeched to a fault. My father was driving empty fine, and the guy jumped out of the car, ran over to our car and started abusing my father and I was pretty embarrassed I guess I was in about eight years of age and he finally stopped and my father smiled at him beatifically he went, smiled he said in a ridiculous French accent he said ah you are a fine old English gentleman no <laughs> and the guy <laughs> Absolutely astounding. I looked at him for several seconds and said, oh, as a matter of fact, I am. Yes. <laughs> Hello! Hello? Who is it? It is King Arthur, and these are my knights of the round table. Whose castle is this? 
This is the castle of my master, Guido Lombard. Go and tell your master that we have been charged by God with a sacred quest. If he will give us food and shelter for the night, he can join us in our quest for the Holy Grail. Well, I'll ask him, but I don't think he'll be very keen. Uh, he's already got one, you see. What? He says they've already got one. Are you sure he's got one? Oh, yes, it's very nice. I told him we already got one. <laughs> well, um, can we come up and have a look? Of course not. You are English type, sir. Well, what are you then? I'm French. Why do you think I have this outrageous accent, you silly king? What are you doing in England? Mind your own business. If you will not show us the grail, we shall take your castle by force. You don't frighten us, English pig dogs. Go and boil your bottom, sons of a silly person. Ah, blow my nose at you, so-called Arthur King. You and all your silly English knickets. What a strange person. Now look here, my good man. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. It, it was an extraordinary off-the-wall thing for somebody of my father's generation to do, and he did it absolutely superbly. And I remember in a restaurant once, we couldn't get service. He called the waitress over and said, could we have our main course now? Because I have an operation to perform in an hour and a quarter. And, of course, the food was on the table immediately. So he, he, he was very like that, but it was, it was a sly but quite zany kind of humor, whereas my mother had very black humor. Now, it, sound, it sounds to me as if, uh, if I'm reading this correctly, your father, his sense of humor was for himself and not for an audience. Oh, yes. Yes, entirely. I, I don't... I mean, he could be funny, but I think you're absolutely right. He was more... It was more a question of amusing himself. Very good. Now, when you were about 13, you started uh, listening to The Goon Show. Is that correct? That's right. That was the, uh, the joy of my life. Now, The Goon characters of people who were around back then, John, uh, Peter Sellers and his characters like Hercules and, and The Major and and uh, Spike Milligan and Mrs. Bannister. Even the guy who, the announcer, Wallace, uh, was a Greenslade? Wallace Greenslade, yeah. Who actually was a BBC announcer, correct? Yes, that's right. But he just managed to straddle that bridge between being real BBC establishment and being able to play off the goons, which was something uh, very, very different. Well, I look at all these characters in Blue Bottle, the uh, Boy Scout. I see a lot of these characters resurfacing with Monty Python first. Do you? Well... It's an obvious observation, but I mean... Well, I'm surprised. I mean, I'm not aware of it, but uh, <laughs> consciously. No, really, consciously, I was never aware of it. Once or twice when I was writing, I would suddenly become aware of, 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 of that, I, that I was remembering something. I remember I was writing one scene once, and I, I thought... I. I'm writing these these lines and there's a rhythm to the way this character is speaking that's familiar to me. And I, I thought about it. After half an hour, I suddenly realized it was a famous English comedian called Tony Hancock. So what I was, what I was mimicking was absolutely unconscious. I had no, no awareness of it at all until it just popped up and I got curious. I'm not aware of have, ever having used any of the 
uh, goon show characters. But the humour was so important to me between the age of about 13, 14, and I think 17 or 18, during that period, listening to the goon show was almost the high point of the week. It was amazing. So I'm sure it's influenced me, but it's almost all unconscious. Well, what which character back when you were a teenage boy uh, made you laugh the hardest? You must have had a favorite. Oh, Eccles. <laughs> Eccles was uh, like that. Oh, really stupid. Oh. Eccles? Yeah. Do you remember Eccles? Oh, yeah, I remember Eccles. <laughs> well, does he know where it went it? I'll ask him. <clears throat> Do you know where it went it? What does he say, Eccles? <laughs> He hasn't answered yet. I think he's out. And I just adored him. I can't even remember. Who did. Oh, Milligan used to do it. Yes, by Milligan. But, well, he's, that's, uh, that's right, Milligan. And Harry Seacombe, who... Um, Seacombe was uh, really just played a silly version of himself. Um, Sellers was a phenomenon. I think the greatest voice man of all time. Certainly that I'm aware of. Didn't you have a daughter with a lovely name? Yeah, a lovely, what was it now? A lovely lyrical lilting name like... Uh, uh, Lolita. Lolita, that's right. Lolita, diminutive of Dolores, the tears and the roses. <laughs> yeah. uh, Wednesday, she's going to have a cavity filled by your Uncle Ivor. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, he could uh, have a conversation with someone and ten minutes later, he could do their voice absolutely perfectly. It was extraordinary, his ability. He did a record once with George Martin called Songs for Swinging Sellers. And when George had finished uh, editing it, he invited Sellers over for the evening and to listen to it. And they were both really happy with it. They were on a little bit of a high. And they went out to dinner afterwards knowing that they'd made a great comedy record. And George said to him, Peter, he said, in that particular sketch... That character, and he named the character, he said, his voice is, is kind of familiar. Whose is it? Mm, I wish I could sing like that. But <laughs> it's not everything singing, you know. It just isn't. I mean, the Bosch are no man's fool, let's face it. And uh, the only important thing these days is, well, in my opinion at least, is uh, rhythm and melody. Rhythm and melody is what the public want. And my Joe, they're going to get it as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> And, uh, yes. and, and Salas looked at him and said, it's yours. <laughs> and he, he had this extraordinary ability to mimic anyone, but like a lot of great mimics, it was partly because he had very little real personality of his own. I think, in a sense, in real life, he was always playing another character. Are you Quilty? Hmm? No, I'm Spartacus. You come to free the slaves or something? Are you Quilty? Yeah, yeah I'm Quilty, yeah, sure. Read this. What's this, a deed to the ranch? It's your death sentence. Read it. Can't read, uh, mister. I never did none of that there book learning, you know. Read it, Quincy. Hmm? Because you took advantage of a sinner. Because you took advantage. Because you took... Because you took advantage... To my disadvantage. Hey, that's a bad blast of darn good poem you've done there. Now, I, uh, I recall, in fact, when Peter Sellers did the famous interview with the Beatles, 
uh, back, I forget what TV, British TV show it was. And I remember back in the 60s when I was a big Beatle fan, I recall him saying, we're here with the Beatle. And I remember thinking, well, that man doesn't know what he's talking about, not realizing that he was being very dry. That's right, yes. He was very funny. I think he was fairly crazy, and I think he could be very, very difficult for the people around him. But I got to know him quite well. I wrote a couple of scripts for him. I appeared in a movie called The Magic Christian with him. Right. And I really liked him. I found him very warm and very generous. I remember once I was uh, staying on the island of Cyprus, and I discovered that they were shooting um, uh, literally uh, 10 minutes' drive away. And I went and said hello, and he said, oh, you must come and stay. And I moved into his villa. Really? And uh, had a lovely time there. I found him extraordinarily nice and kind. My experience as Sellers is a very, very nice guy. But I'm sure just a bit crazy, and I'm sure he could be impossible. Now, back to John Marwood, please. Oh, him. Moving along, uh, <laughs> finally you went. To, you started at Cambridge in the fall of 1960. Yes, you joined. You joined the Footlights Club. Would you explain that organization to me? Yeah, it's like the Hasty Pudding Club uh, at uh, Harvard. Uh, you see, the funny thing was in those days there was only one university in the United Kingdom where you could study drama, and that was Bristol. But uh, a lot of people went to Cambridge and Oxford and finished up in the theatre, but you'd never study it because it wasn't available. You'd do a proper subject like classics or economics or history or something, uh, but you might spend an awful lot of your spare time doing theatrical stuff. And it just so happened there was a little club called the Footlights which specialised in doing sketches. And it was a tradition that uh, every year, at the end of the academic year, the Footlights would produce a two-hour review full of sketches and songs and skits and all that kind of thing that would be done in the local Cambridge Professional Theatre, the Arts Theatre. And during the course of the year, there'd be some smoking concerts where all the members of the Footlights would get up and try and entertain each other. And from the very best material that was created during the rest of the year, a selection would be made and that's what the show would be at the Arts Theatre in the following um, June. Now was that uh, traditional uh, as it was back then? The men played all the women's parts? Well in those days for example I was a law student and uh, there were because in England you can do law as an undergraduate and I did uh, I used to go to these classes where there were 300 people of whom 197 were men and three were girls there were a couple of girls colleges there but by and large um, you didn't see much of them so you, you, had, you had to play the role of the women yeah, we had to. And it was also pretty much of a British tradition. It's not considered particularly significant. It's just one of the things that people do to be funny. For example, we have uh, kids' entertainments at Christmas called pantomimes, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk or Cinderella, right. those kind of things, goody two-shoes. And when you go to those, you find that the prince... Uh, the, the, uh, the prince, the prince, is always played by a girl. She's known as the uh, the leading man, believe it or not. Really, and that's right. And then the uh, the prince is always attracted to some beautiful but impecunious girl who's played by a girl. But the impecunious girl has a mother who's always played by a fella. That's the pantomime dame. So this kind of cross dressing is, is is something that's so familiar to the English that we don't kind of think that it has any kind of ulterior meaning. Whereas I remember that early on when Terry Jones was coming to New York and was being interviewed, I think, by the Rolling Stone, uh, 
magazine, the, the first question the interviewer was said, now, Terry, let me just get this straight. All six of you are gay, right? <laughs> so the assumption, but you know how square America is sexually. I mean, you pretend to be depraved and, frankly, you're pathetic. Good evening, Mother. Ah, good evening, Mrs. Niggerbader. Oh, he's walking already. Oh, yes, he's such a clever little fellow, aren't you? Hello, Cootie Boo. Hello, Cootie Boo. Cootie Boo, Cootie Boo. Yes, yes. Oh, look at him laughing. Oh, he's a chirpy little fellow. Yes. Oh, he's a chirpy little fellow, eh? Oh, can he talk? Can he talk, eh? Yes, of course I can talk. I'm Minister for Overseas Development. Oh, he's a clever little boy, isn't he? A clever little fellow. Do you like your apple? Do you like your little rattle? Oh, yes, the rattle, yes, very good, yes. Look at his giggy, giggy little eyeballs, eh? Oh, he's got a tubby tum tum. No, don't do that, please. Mother, can I have a quick cup of tea, please? I have an important statement about Rhodesia and the Commons tomorrow. Good thing, too. Oh, she was my best friend. Oh, Mother, don't be so sentimental. Things explode every day. Yes, I suppose so. Anyway, I didn't like her, really. It's just a costume party, that's all. Yeah, that's it. By the way, I don't imagine at six foot four and a half, you got a lot of women roles, right? Did that protect you a bit? Well, not really, you know. I used to play quite a lot, although the uh, the funniest experience I ever had is we did a show in Bavaria, southern Germany, in the early 70s, and I was actually playing Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> and uh, we were shooting out there in the Bavarian forest, a long, long way from any place where normally film cameras were to be seen. And I remember we stopped at lunch and uh, had... Uh, a wonderful meal in a Bavarian tavern because it was late there was hardly anyone there and I went to uh, the the men's room at the end of the meal and as I emerged a Bavarian peasant was coming into the men's room and he looked up and saw this six foot four and a half little red riding hood and I wish I wish I had a photograph of that face because you have never seen amazement on that scale now back to John Marwood please as he oh, finally he makes yeah. the goon shows in 1968? Uh, yes, that's right. Because I knew Peter, he asked me if I would play the Wallace Greenslade role. And it's almost amazing for me to think in that, that, that uh, I actually perform with those guys. But you're right, it was for Thames Television, and I came forward a few times and uh, Must have been read from my script into a microphone. So Peter Sellers was the reason, but were you obviously you were nervous, right? Yes, but I remember the... I, you see, the great thing... I always I was terrified of forgetting my lines, and the great thing about pretending to be Wallace Greenslade is I had a script in my hand, so I knew that I wasn't going to forget my lines, and they actually made me feel very much at home. And I don't remember being anything like as scared as I should have been. Now, that was my next question. What was your first line on The Goon Show? Oh, I have no idea. Oh, you don't? No. Oh. All right. No, no, no idea at all. all that right. was 25 years ago. Well, speaking of... 19- no, 35 years ago. Right. Speaking of 1968... Oh, let me remind people, we're talking to John Cleese. Well, let's talk about me again. Yeah, 1968, <laughs> you did The Goon Show, you were on a high, and you met uh, Connie Booth. Oh, I met Connie in New York in 64. Oh, I'm sorry, you got married in 68. Yes, that's right. Um, she, uh, she was actually uh, working in a restaurant 
called The Living Room on 3rd Avenue, where pretty out-of-work actresses could earn a little bit of money uh, waitressing at lunchtime. And the fact that she was bringing me food and not arguing with me struck me as a very good basis <laughs> for marriage. Now, Connie, a lot of people may not know this, uh, uh, was collaborated with you on Faulty Towers. Yes, she, she and I wrote them together. And, uh, in fact, after you separated, you still did another season together, even though you... I don't know yes, you... it puzzled people immensely, which was very satisfying, but we actually split up in about 76, and we did the first series of Faulty Towers in 75 and the second in 79, I think. But we are still very good pals. We had lunch together about three weeks ago, and she's married a very interesting man called John La, who's the son of the cowardly lion, John... Uh, um, Bert Lahr. Bert Lahr, right. Uh, from um, uh, whatever that movie was called, Wh- Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz. And he's the theater critic, uh, the New Yorker, and an extraordinarily interesting fellow. So we're, we, uh, we see each other regularly. Well, Faulty Tower is, of course, is an institution, and... It's magnificent, Sonny. That's the word you're searching oh, yes, for. That's it's right. epoch-shattering. <laughs> there has never been a show as good since the universe began. Well, actually, when... We just want to get that clear. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, you were asked once about whether you still watch Faulty Towers, and let me quote you here. As, <laughs> as I watch them now, I become aware that some are almost better than I thought, and one or two are slightly disappointing. So apparently you, you enjoy the results. Yes, by and large, you see, it may seem strange to people, but after you've been away from a show for a small number of years, you really do forget most of the jokes in it. So when you come and watch it again, it's, it's kind of fresh. And uh, I was watching, uh, sometimes I raise a little bit of money for charity by a very simple uh, procedure, which is I introduce one or two of them, and then they show them to the audience, and then I get up and do questions and answers, which I feel perfectly secure about and tell a few tired old jokes that I've memorized. (laughs) And it goes perfectly well, as I say, it raises a little bit of money. But I saw one uh, a few years ago. I was actually asked to talk to a room full of psychiatrists, and we showed them the episode with the psychiatrist, and I thought it was hilarious. (laughs) And I suddenly realized I was laughing more than anyone else in the rooms. God knows what the shrink's made of that. But you, you really can forget the thing and almost enjoy it again. Now, you, were, that's, you liked that better than Basil the Rat? Uh, that's another one of my very favorites. Well, of course it's a rat. You have rats in Spain, don't you? Or did Franco have them all shot? <laughs> this hamster, it's a rat. No, I think so, too. What? I say to man in shop, it's a rat. He said, no, 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 it's a special kind of hamster. It's filigree Siberian hamster. Only one in shop, he makes special price, only five pounds. Have you ever heard of the bubonic plague, Manuel? It was very popular here at one time. A lot of pedigree hamsters came over on ships from Siberia. What do you do? I'm sorry, Manuel, this is a rat. No, no, it's hamster. He's not hamster. Hamsters are small and cuddly. Cuddle this, you'd never play the guitar again. Come on. I, I think they're pretty good. I mean, the German episode has got three awful bits of physical business in it which we should have reshot but you know we didn't have time sunny because we used to have uh, we only had two hours with the audience so it was from beginning to end it was two hours and if you didn't get the thing recorded in two hours you didn't have a show so you weren't able to stop the whole time and pick things up and one of the reasons it looks pretty good is that so much time went into the editing we used to spend about 25 hours editing each 30 minute show really yeah, now, this, but it, this, it, was a, it was a mad scramble, and we, I don't think we ever completed the dress rehearsal before we recorded the show. This is typical. Absolutely typical. 
kind of us I have to put up with from you people. You punks in here expecting to be hand-waited on hand and foot while I'm trying to run a hotel here. Have you any idea of how much there is to do? Do you ever think of that? Of course not. You're too busy sticking your noses into every corner, poking about for things to complain about, aren't you? Well, let me tell you something. This is exactly how Nazi Germany started. Layabout with nothing better to do than to cause trouble. Well, I've had 15 years of pandering to the likes of you, and I've had enough. I've had it. Come on, pack your bags and get out. They're packed. Order ten taxis, will you? I'll pay for them. Come on, come on. What? what? Out. Everybody out. Come on upstairs, pack your bags. Adios, out. What about the training? Well, you should have thought of that before, shouldn't you? Too late now. Come on out. Rouse. 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 What are you doing? Well, let me explain, my little workhorse. Um, the guests and I have been having a bit of an old chinwag, and the upshot of it all is they're off. Off? Well, let me put it this way, dear. Either they go, or I go. Right, right, come on back, everybody. My wife's had a better idea. Come on back. I'm going instead. Well, goodbye, dear. It's been an interesting 15 years, but all good things must come to an end. I hope you enjoy your new work here, helping to run a hotel. Goodbye, Major. Goodbye, goodbye ladies. Goodbye. Give my regards to Polly and Manuel. Bye, dear. You've forgotten your keys, Basil. <laughs> so I have, dear, yes. Oh, and goodbye to the rest of you. I hope you enjoy your stay here. Don't forget any complaints. Don't hesitate to tell my wife. Any hour of the day or night... Just shout, bye! Does, does Basil Fawlty have any redeeming qualities? No. <laughs> no, he's a truly awful human being, and people feel affection for him. Um, I've been watching a lot of W.C. Fields recently, because Fields really is <laughs> a fairly awful person, but actually watching Fields, you feel much more, um, much more sympathy and liking for him. But he's still not very nice to quite a lot of people. Your belligerent little bundling board perpetrated an act of sabotage by stretching a wire across my garden path. Yes, I'd be glad to do that. You see, it was perfectly innocent, Bill. You see, he was he was setting a skunk trap. That's what he was doing. Oh, a skunk trap. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fine. That covers everything. Yeah. Thanks for the compliment. Oh, well, I didn't mean it that way. It's okay. Basil is absolutely unredeemed. He is awful to absolutely everyone. He is a shallow, vain snob with a bad temper who's largely uh, depressed and has no idea how to handle his depression. And people thought, think that they would like him. But of course they wouldn't. They'd be within 30 seconds. They'd hate him. Well, but then again, there's always the instant karma at the end of every episode. I mean, you know, he gets, he gets what he deserves. Oh, well, that's true, yes, time and time again. In fact, Connie and I, when we were writing the show, we used to ache with laughter when we thought what we were doing to him, you know, <laughs> what awful, awful torture we were putting the man through. We would ache and ache and then almost feel sorry for him, but not for long because he would always find some awful way of dealing with it. Well, actually, you shouldn't feel bad either because you could justify it by saying it was his own fault. Yes, that's true. But actually, um, the essence of comedy is you get to a situation where the protagonist can do five or six different things, and he always makes the wrong choice. It just has to be believable that he would make that choice at the moment that he did it. But it always complicates things instead of simplifying them. It always makes things worse instead of improving them. Before we get on to Monty Python, one more thing about that. On to what? Monty Python. Uh, one more thing about that era in the Monty life Python. of uh, John Cleese. 
was you had a byproduct uh, called Cynthia. Yes, that's right. Who lives down the coast from me in uh, Santa Monica. Well, I was going to ask you, do you approve of her being in show business? Cynthia, by the way, his daughter is an actress. Well, she used to be. I have to correct you oh. here. She was my daughter in Fish Called Wanda, and she was absolutely terrific. Right. And she was 17 and still at school. But a few years ago, she married a very successful writer called Ed Solomon, probably best known for writing the screenplay for Men in Black. And they have two uh, lovely little kids, Evan and Olivia. Um, and she just decided a few years ago that she wanted to be a mum and a housewife and to have time to read and do yoga and have a civilized life. And I don't think she uh, retained a great deal of interest in show business. And funnily enough, neither did Connie. Connie is now a trained therapist and is operating as a therapist in London. Really? And occasionally goes to the theatre, but has no interest at all. In fact, she, she just decided to cut herself off from show business. So when we uh, trot um, the faulty tire stuff out yet again to try and squeeze another scent out of it, she just <laughs> politely says that pass. She doesn't even want to be interviewed about it. Now, uh, so, so Sin has gone the same route and is uh, immensely happy, but um, sort of interested in show business as a consumer, but not as an actress. Now, I'll, okay, outside of show business, what, which one of Dad's traits do you see in your daughter? In, in Cynthia? Yes. An extraordinary spiritual maturity and magnanimity. <laughs> Just, Ford, uh, oh, oh, um... <laughs> Humble. You forgot. She's humble. very funny, actually. She can do impersonations, which I can't. She's very funny outside of show business. I think she's interested in the same sort of things that I do. She's uh, she reads. Uh, she's reading. Was reading a book about Harry Truman recently and loving it. I think she's interested in history. And it's you... a very dull answer, but you asked me a dull question. <laughs> did you uh, enjoy? Funny. Be... <laughs> I'm going to hate you. Now, let's have a really interesting question now. So, the next one up, interesting, okay? Okay, fine. Well, I was going to say, did you enjoy becoming a grandfather? But that sucks, too. How's that? Yeah, that's that sucks. Okay, let's go on to the... That's a worse question than the previous one. Let's go on to the era of your life that made you famous. How's that? Or the most famous. My philanthropy. (laughs) No, no, no. Before that. Uh, that. You actually, everybody in Monty Python worked on the Frost Report over in England before they... Absolutely right. right. That's right. Uh, 66. Uh, Frost was a huge name. Um, BBC gave him a sketch show, which he fronted. It didn't take part in the sketches very much. Um, Chose me, for which I am eternally grateful. We're talking about... a couple of guys called Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett. We're talking about David Frost, right? David Frost. And um, when we sat down on that first day to discuss the material that we were all going to write for the Frost Report, as it was called, uh, there was uh, Michael Palin and Terry Jones and Eric Idle, along with uh, me and my writing partner, Graham Chapman. So that's the first time I think the five of us ever sat around the table, as opposed to just bumping into each other by accident. We all know the routines by heart. We've heard about the parrot get the silly walk. I would really love it if you would Take the time, if you don't mind, and tell me a personal insight as to these these friends you work with. How much longer is this question going on? No. (laughs) Okay. I mean, it's just rolling on and on and on. You should talk. All right, here we go. Now, don't you? It's a good, simple question. Why don't you say, what year did Cardinal Richelieu die? (laughs) 
1642. That's the sort of interchange we should be having, not these strange oh, rambling explorations of your unconscious. Now, come along, sir. Okay. Uh, forgive me. Uh, let's take them all one at a time. I want your insight. I want your true, honest opinion uh, of, let's start with Eric Idle. Oh, if this is this would be impossible. It would, it would end my career. <laughs> I can't afford uh, these kind of. Uh, now wait a minute. Let me let me quote Eric. He once called himself the sixth nicest member of the group, and he said John Cleese is a lot nicer than he used to be. In, in fact, I'll stick my neck out and say that nowadays John Cleese is probably among the nicest of them all. Well, the fifth nicest anyway <laughs> since Graham died. Uh, Eric is. Eric is much more show busy than the rest of us. He has a genuine musical talent. I think in many ways he would rather have been a musician than a comic. But, you know, he just happened to fall among thieves. Um, uh, he has written some great songs. He hangs out a great deal with famous uh, rock stars. He's uh, great pals of uh, Bowie and uh, Mick Jagger and people like that. And I think he really loves show business and all the aspects of it. That is what's very different from him, really, uh, from any of the others. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. And always look on the bright side of life Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten There's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle That's the thing Ain't always look on the bright side of life Come on Always look on the bright side of life For life is quite absurd And death's the final word You must always face the curtain with a bag Forget about your seat, give the audience a grin. Enjoy it, it's your last chance anyhow. So always look on the bright side of death. Just before you draw your terminal breath. Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. It's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true You'll see it's all a show Keep them laughing as you go Just remember that the last laugh is on you And always look on the bright side of life Always look on the right side of life
I must ask you, did he really give you a hard time about uh, some of the reunions that were being done? Is that just a rumor? Yes, there was a falling out after we did the Aspen show. Um, we wanted, some of us, Eric and I, wanted to do a stage tour uh, because we thought it would have been great fun to have done the stage show again in two, three, four big cities for a few weeks. And Eric, and Eric was very pissed off with Michael, who, who kind of uh, went along with it for several months and then suddenly changed his mind. And I thought he was too rude to Michael. I, I, I didn't like the way he was, he was speaking to him. Did you tell him but, so? But, you know, it's one of, those, one of those things that happened at the time. And I, while that was on, he got very cross that uh, the rest of the group didn't want to do the stage show, so he said he didn't want to do the 30th anniversary show that we did for the BBC. But I think... That it's all been papered over now. But you also have to remember that we're scattered now all over the globe, and we only see each other occasionally. It's not as though we're bumping into each other all the time. By the way, speaking of that Aspen special, uh, mm. tell me, where, what was... Where did you get... What were those ashes you spilled all over the stage? They were, in fact, Winston Churchill's ashes, <laughs> which we'd, we'd hired for the week. Oh, thank um, you God. Can, you can get them from... The, the Churchill family are on hard times now. And uh, so... I'm afraid by the time we got them back, um, his his right leg was missing. Well, that's right. Can you recall or can you tell me the one thing you, that Eric did that really made you laugh? Yes, I loved the first show. He wrote a marvelous sketch in which um, uh, a Catholic and um, an agnostic were going to argue about the existence of God. And then they said that in a discussion they'd had before the program, they'd realized it was pointless to argue about it, so they were going to fight about it instead. <laughs> and they went in a wrestling ring and threw each other around. I, and I think that at the end we announced that God existed by two falls and a knockdown to something. And I thought that was, funnily enough, the best bit of material he ever, comedy material as opposed to musical material that he ever wrote. Do you consider, uh, if all the people in the group that wrote would you consider eric's material uh uh frivolous no eric's material is very very verbal he loves getting into the kind of uh, sketch where people speak in anagrams um he's very very strong in those areas for very very verbal stuff he doesn't write sketches with a great deal of emotion in them, where people are um, going through different kind of emotions and emotional changes. So that what he writes is a little bit dry, but very clever. And he is also much the best of us at parody. Now let me move along to Michael Palin, okay? Which one is he? <laughs> no one expects a Spanish Inquisition. Our weapon is supplies. Supplies and fear. Fear and supply. Our two weapons. Our fear and supplies and the ruthless efficiency. Our three weapons. Our fear and supplies and the ruthless efficiency and an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope. Ah. Amongst our weapons. Our fear, supplies, ruthless. 
amongst our weaponry, weaponry. are mm. such elements as a fierce... I'll oh, come in again. Now, you... You said that little stumpy one with short legs. Right. You... Uh, let me again quote he you. He talks much too much. Uh, That's the main thing you need to know. In fact, the only thing you need to know about Michael is he talks very much too much. Well, He's the only person I know who talks more than my wife. Actually, I want to quote you again. Yes. On and on, hour after hour... Michael, tiring the sun with talking and sending him down the sky. It was a quote you made about how much he talks. That's right. Now, was the character he played in Wanda, was it originally a stutterer, or did that come along later in the script? No, that was uh, one of the very first, uh, in fact, I think the first idea that I had before I even sat down with Charlie Crichton to figure out the story was uh, that there should be someone with a stutter who was really trying to tell somebody something but was so excited he couldn't get it out. It was the first idea I had, and I asked Michael to do it. First of all, I wanted Michael in the film anyway, but secondly, Michael's father had a stutter. Tell him from me. So Michael had a chance to observe you know exactly what it is that stutterers do because it's it's not easy to to make that funny and most people who try fail miserably now was the uh one more question about that movie was the french fries up the nose was that in the script or was that uh yes that was in the script from uh, from the beginning most of the stuff i do Sunny is um, is very much scripted, and uh, if there's any improvisation, it tends to go on during the writing process. And as I'm a very slow writer, there's a lot of time for improvisation. But it may, mainly consists of me sitting in the chair, sometimes with someone next to me, sometimes alone, and just trying out different lines. I always do them in the voice, the character. I don't do it in my own voice, and neither do I just stare at a, a page and hear the words in my head. I actually act it out. But by the time I go on set, whether it's a Monty Python or Forty Towers, the room for uh, improvisation is absolutely minimal because I think it's very unlikely that I'm going to come up with something much better at that moment than I've come up with thinking about it for weeks beforehand. Which Monty Python routine or character Michael Palin did was your favorite? You know, I, I recently watched Life of Brian, which uh, you will be surprised to hear here in America, is um, the favorite Python film in the UK, almost unanimously. In America, people prefer the Holy Grail, um, but in England, almost to a man, they think Life of Brian is better, and I have to agree with them. I think Michael's performing in that film is absolutely extraordinary. I always like the film. I think it's much our best. But just watching it, I, I began to look at the range of characters that he was playing, and I think it was absolutely marvellous. A group of performances, um, and I would say that that's the best thing he ever did. Crucifixion. Yes. Good. Out of the door, line on the left, one cross each. Next. I'm worrying about what you've got against birds. Really, Centurion? I'm surprised to hear a man like you rattled by a wabble of wadi wibble. There shall in that time be rumours of things going astray, um, and there shall be a great confusion as to where things really are. And nobody will really know where lieth those little things with, with the sort of raffia work base that has an attachment. At this time, a friend shall lose his friend's hammer, and the young shall not know where lieth the things possessed by their fathers that their fathers put there only just the night before, about 8 o'clock. Now let's move on to uh, Terry Gilliam. And the result shall be huge and black and the eyes get up. Dead with the blood of living creatures! 
and the whore of Babylon shall ride forth on a free-headed serpent and throughout the land shall be a great rubbing of pots. Terry Gilliam who is the only, uh, is the word American, is that correct? Yes, that's right, um, uh, um, from, uh, from up in the Great Lakes, but he went to Occidental College, California. Now, uh, let me quote you again. Uh, you said, you left alone with some crates of crayons, some bales of paper, and a box or two of fresh fruit. His output is nothing short of phenomenal. He is not just an illustrator. You want to elaborate on Terry for us? Yes, I always used to laugh. <laughs> I always used to tease Terry. Unmercifully, actually. Most of us did. Chapman used to join in, in particular. Because Terry, we used to tease him about not being, not expressing himself in a very articulate way. I remember once we... Um, we thought that uh, we were suddenly someone said, I thought, let's have some coffee. And Terry said, yeah, oh, why didn't someone boil up a whole bunch of water? <laughs> and we thought, bunch of water, you know, it would have taken Shakespeare two weeks to get to that. <laughs> and we used to give him a terrible time. The other thing was I could kind of impersonate him. And Terry, you know, Terry only said two things. He said, I really like that. I really like that. Or he said, oh, it really pisses me off. <laughs> and uh, when he was, when I was shooting and he was directing, I used to actually say uh, at the end of a take he showed uh, cut, and I'd say, "Hey, I really like that. Okay, we're doing, uh, moving on." And I'd hear him say, "Okay, we're doing, we're, we're good." And the crew didn't know whether they were moving on, or doing it again. So I used to be very naughty there. Which was, he, which one of his creations were your favorite, John? Um, oh, I thought some of those, uh, some of those. Um, uh, animations that he came up for the show were terrific. I just like the man who's watching the television and those strange instruments appear through the street and, uh, screen and do awful things to his eyes. <laughs> Pull them out and spin them around and plaster them with things and then right at the end them, the mother shouts in the kitchen, you are watching television again, Gerald, you know it's bad for your eyes. It was just such a silly, simple joke and I loved it. Um, of his, uh, his directing stuff, I, 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 I think he produces the best images that, um, that anyone, any director working today produces. I think his problem is that Terry has never been as strong on story as he is on everything else. Yeah. And he sometimes takes as his theme of his movies um, ideas that are not terribly strong on story in the first place. You know, if you take the, uh, what was it, the Hunter Thompson, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, right. that is not a great story. Years ago, I heard he was going to do, um, uh, what is it, the Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. And I thought that would have been fantastic for Terry, because if you gave him a story like that, and his ability to, to uh, produce these extraordinary images, I think he'd produce a masterpiece. No, he we... seems to be drawn inexorably to things that don't have such a good story spine to them. A lot of visuals. Lots of visuals. Uh, Terry Jones is next. Liberal rubbish, Klaus! Yeah? What do you want with your jugged fish? Halibut. The jugged fish is halibut! Well, what fish have you got that isn't jugged? Rabbit! Yes, Welsh, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, he, the uh, subject people, you know about that. Created by God to do menial tasks. Well, he, he did play the straight man a lot. Evening, squire. Good evening. Is, uh, is your wife a goer, eh? No, no, mate, no, no, mate. <laughs> Know what I mean? Say no more. Beg your pardon. Your wife, does she go? Hey, does she go? Hey. Oh, 
she sometimes goes, yes. I bet she does, I bet she does. Say no more, say no more, know what I mean? Nudge, nudge. I'm afraid I don't quite follow you. Follow but... me, follow me, that's good, that's good. Eight nods as good as a wink to a blind bat. Are you selling something? Selling? Very good, very good, eh? 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 <laughs> You're wicked, eh? Wicked, eh? Say no more! Not like a joke. Is your wife a sport, eh? She likes sport, yes. I bet she does, I bet she does. As a matter of fact, she's very fond of cricket. Who is it? She likes games, eh? Likes games. Knew she would. She's been around a bit, eh? Been around. She has travelled, yes. She's from Purley. Say no more! <laughs> Purley Square, famous place. Say no more. Is, uh, is your wife interested in photography, eh? Photographs, eh? He asked him knowingly. Photography? Snap, snap, grin, grin, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Oh, holiday snaps. Could be, could be taken on holiday. Candid, eh? Candid photography. No, I'm afraid we don't have a camera. Oh. Still. Whoa, eh? Whoa, eh? Whoa, eh? Look, are you insinuating something? Oh, no, no, no. Yes. Well? Well, I mean, you're a man of the world, Squire. Yes. I mean, you've been around a bit, eh? You've, uh, you've done it. What do you mean? Well, I mean, I mean, like, Chief, you've, uh, you've, uh, slept with a lady. Oh, yes. I always call him the, uh, I beg your pardon guy, because he, yeah, that's right. he was with the, well, he was the uh, head of the Nudge Nudge and all the, you know. Terry is much the most interesting of us all, because he has extraordinary wide interests. And he's forever writing children's books. Then he'll do a television series about the Crusades. Then he'll write a, a movie for Steven Spielberg. It's quite extraordinary, the range of stuff that he manages to do. And I said to him about a year ago, I said, how, how can you... It's marvellous, all these things you do. How can you afford to do all these things, like working for the BBC, which, of course, is, is ruinous to one's bank account? And he said, you have to remember, John, I'm still married to the same woman and living in the same house. And that's why he's able to go off and do this extraordinary range of interesting things, whereas most of the time I'm doing well-paid crap. <laughs> now, what is the funniest image in your mind when you think of Terry? What's the one thing he did, in, perhaps in Monty Python, you love the best? Well, I, I loved and also immensely admired the fat man in the restaurant <laughs> in Meaning of Life because he was actually directing that scene as well as being in it. And how he physically managed to get through three days of being in charge of every aspect of that scene and performing it so well and being in that deeply uncomfortable costume, I think he should get a, a medal for it. I thought it was magnificent. <laughs> Last but not least is uh, Graham Chapman. Yes, uh, least, I would have said, wouldn't you? Uh, no, no. <laughs> least and certainly most dead. Yes. Uh, he started when he started performing on stage after being a writer. It, it says in one of many biographies that he was never quite sure what he was going to do next. Was he was he the guy in the troupe that would go to the length of embarrassment? In your opinion? Would no oh yes, in uh, in ordinary life. Well, I meet a lot of people, and I'm convinced that the vast majority of wrong-thinking people are right. Well, we seem to have a consensus there. He was funny, Graham. 
He was um, an odd mixture of really quite repressed and absolutely outrageous, and he would swing between the two. There wasn't much middle ground. Congratulations on buying the executive version of this record. You have chosen wisely, and we value your discerning taste in deciding to pay the few extra pence for a product of real quality. Everything on this record has been designed to meet the exacting standards which you have naturally come to expect. The record itself is made from the very finest Colombian extruded polyvinyl. The center hole has been created to fit exactly onto your spindle with all the precision of finest Swiss craftsmanship. The audio content has been quality graded to give you the finest in listening pleasure. There is little or no offensive material apart from four cunts, one clitoris and a foreskin. And as they only occur in this opening introduction, you're past them now. You can relax and enjoy this quality product, secure in the knowledge that it has been specially created for the lover of fine things and the man of good taste. Oh, sorry, you can edit that out, can't you? But I remember um, in the uh, early 70s, we were all invited to a cocktail party at the BBC one Christmas. And um, he, after he'd been there about five or ten minutes, uh, he was down on all fours, uh, nibbling people's ankles. <laughs> and um, people would be sitting there chatting. They looked down and there would Graham be nibbling away at their ankles. And he would do things like that. He Once we won a, an award from the Sun newspaper and um, he went along to accept it and it was being um, presented believe it or not by the Chancellor of the Exchequer a man called Reggie Maudlin whose name often appeared in our sketches and Graham got about um, nine-tenths of the way to the to the stage and up the steps and then suddenly started screaming and threw himself to the ground and crawled on his belly snake-like up to Reggie Maudlin who was really quite scared because <laughs> Reggie really thought he'd gone crazy and he screamed <laughs> grabbed the trophy away from Reggie and then slithered off the stage. And he would do things like that, but on the other hand, he would spend a lot of the time just sitting quietly, slightly in the corner, sucking at his pipe. Don't pass judgment on other people or you might get judged yourself. What? I said, don't pass judgment on other people or else you might get judged too. Oh, me? Yes. Oh, thank you very much. Consider the lilies. Consider the lilies? Uh, well, the birds, then. What birds? Any birds. Why? Well, have they got jobs? Who? The birds. Have the birds got jobs? What's the matter with him? Says the birds are scrounging. Oh, look, the point is, the birds, they do all right, don't they? Well, good luck to them. Yeah, they're very pretty. OK, and you're much more important than they are, right? So what are you worrying about? They are, see? I'm worrying about what you've got against birds. I haven't got anything against the birds. Consider the lily. He's oh, having a go at the flowers oh, now. Give the flowers a chance. Look, there was this man and he had two servants. What were they called? What? What were their names? I don't know. And he gave them some talents. You don't know? Well, it doesn't matter. He doesn't know what they were called. Oh, they were called Simon and Adrian. Now... Oh, you said you didn't know. It really doesn't matter. The point is, there were these two servants. He's making it up as he goes and not. No, I'm not. And he gave them some... Wait a minute, were there three? Oh, oh he's three. terrible. Oh, yeah. There were three, they were, they were stewards, really. Oh, oh, 
Convinced by a lobster that Brian is the Messiah, a large crowd pursues him outside the city, where in the hole of a lone hermit... Oh. What? I missed a bit out there. I think it should have no, been... No, to the hole of to a, the a hole lone of, hermit. Of, of a lone hermit. I think that's fine, isn't it, Andre? Well, now, he also, like you said, he was unusual in real life. He he met up with uh, David Sherlock, who he lived with uh, all his life. They adopted a son. He, he, he put up... I mean, this was 1969, when that wasn't very common. Well, that's right. He met David in 66. Uh, I was on the island of Ibiza writing a script with Graham for... David Frost, and I went back to watch England play in the World Cup because it was the year, the only year that we won. And while I was away, he apparently met David. I only learned this about a year or two later, but he was not very comfortable in those days with the idea of being in a gay relationship. And he always thought I was very shocked. I wasn't shocked, but I was extraordinarily surprised because Graham's image uh, in those days was of someone who wore tweed jackets and smoked a pipe and played rugby and it went climbing and drank a lot of beer, you know? It was the ultimate butch image, so I was very, very surprised when he suddenly... And he'd had girlfriends. Uh, I was very, very surprised when he suddenly sort of announced a coming-out party for David. That was about a year and a half later, probably very late 60s, I guess, about 68. Before we run out of time, though, I want to get to the funeral. Oh, I'm looking forward to running out of time. (laughs) I want to quote uh, Eric Idle quickly. Graham died with brilliant timing on October 4th, 89, the very eve of the 20th anniversary of the first recording of Monty Python, causing a huge celebratory party to be canceled in what Terry Jones called the greatest act of party pooping in history. (laughs) Now, you went to St. Bart's. Now, uh, they say this roast turned into a, from a sad occasion to amusing to a, just a, a great time, and no, and no thanks to you. You want to confess here what you, well, what did you a, did when you stood up and started doing the... Uh... Well, I basically, um, yeah, I roasted him, because when I was thinking what to write a few, uh, a few days earlier, <clears throat> I, could, uh, I could hear Graham almost uh, at my shoulder saying, for God's sake, don't start saying anything polite and civilized and reverential because those kind of things drove Graham absolutely crazy. So I really uh, wrote uh, a piece saying what a bum he was and using a lot of bad language. And I, it was funny because I, I just sensed it was going to be funny because it was Graham's funeral. If it had been almost anyone else's funeral, it would have been inappropriate and therefore unfunny. But that was it, but it, is it true? It kind of took off, Sonny. Shut up I'm talking. <laughs> it kind of took off and then Everyone else started using bad language, and there was such an atmosphere of freeness that you could see people would be laughing, and then a minute and a half later they'd be crying, and then they'd be laughing again. There was, it was very un-English. You may now speak. Okay. I was going to say, did you not get up and start doing the pet shop routine with his name in it? That's right, yes. I did a bit of that at the start. He is no more. He has ceased to be. Yes, that's right. Right. He has joined the choir invisible. That's right. Yeah, that seemed, uh, it was kind of obvious once you'd thought of it. <laughs> but um, it, was, it was rather a marvelous occasion, and it shows what happens when people die, which is that your, mo- your, your emotions move around <clears throat> so much 
um, from being able to celebrate them and to laugh with them to great sadness at the thought of losing them. And you miss that in a lot of, a lot of funerals and memorial services because everyone is trying to be reverential, which, as I said, Graham used to hate. You claim to be the first person to say fuck at a memorial service. Is this well, I claim to be. <laughs> I claim to be, but I'm told that uh, Queen Victoria said uh, fuck when she was... Um, <laughs> roasting Alfred Lord Tennyson at his funeral, but I'm not sure. I'll, I'll get it confirmed. John Cleese, it's been a marvelous pleasure. A pleasure for me too, Sonny. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, so fuck off, Sonny. Will you? <laughs> Please? John Cleese, Monty Python alumni and many more things. A very talented guy and uh, a pleasure to have met and spent some time with. We hope you enjoyed that. Uh, if you like it, tell your friends about the podcast. It's called FoxCast. It's at SunnyFox, S-O-N-N-Y-F-O-X dot podbean. That's pod, B-E-A-N, like in bean. <laughs> SunnyFox dot podbean dot com. Okay? And we'll see you next week with another interview. And thanks for listening. <laughs>